Well, good morning. Good morning. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. Amen. Um, let me invite you to remain standing as we prepare to hear God's word. We are going to open Luke 24, this account of Jesus' resurrection, with the dawn, the dawning of a new era. And it's funny, in English, that word Easter actually derives from an old Anglo-Saxon word, and it meant the goddess of the dawn. And so early in the springtime, those people who lived in the British Isles would worship Easter, and they would have a feast in spring. But then, when Christianity came to the Anglo-Saxons and they converted en masse to Christianity, they realized there was a new and better dawn, a new dawn that doesn't go down, a new dawn that has risen in the person of Jesus Christ, and He is always alive. Let's now turn our attention to God's written word for us, the resurrection from Luke 24, 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that the women had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, "'Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen.' Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would, by your Spirit, come and make the word of God fresh to us. Would you take this story that we have heard so many times, and would you help it to seep into the depths of our being? so that we would become an Easter people, praising the life of the living one, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's such a blessing that we are celebrating the birth of two babies. They were both actually born yesterday, and I know that the parents are probably on cloud nine right now, notwithstanding the really bad sleeping arrangements that the spouse has in most of those recovery rooms. I know I shouldn't complain about that, but I got a terrible night's sleep the first night. It's really hard going to labor and delivery. Oh, sorry. Seriously, though, it is a joy to go to labor and delivery, isn't it? It's that place in the hospital that you want to visit, where you know that happiness and excitement and joy await you. When I uh, was, uh, not me, when my wife was having our first child, she was in labor, and uh, Elliot wasn't here yet, and uh, I was starting to get hungry. You know, I was starting to get hungry, and I was a little confused, a little discombobulated, right? Your first kid, you don't really know. So I decided I was going to go get some lunch. Well, instead of going just a little way away to the canteen in the hospital, I decided that I really wanted Chick-fil-A. So I find my car, you know, in one of those parking lots, you have no idea where it is, 
And I get to Chick-fil-A, and I had just ordered my 12-count nugget meal with an Arnold Palmer. And I'm caught in between two cars, and it's like at that moment I woke up. And I was like, oh my goodness, what have I done? I just left my wife in the hospital, and she could be giving birth to our baby child right now. It was like a really scary experience. Thankfully, I got to have my cake and eat it too. (laughs) I got my 12-piece nugget count and made it back just in time for Elliot to be born. As I was thinking this week about this sermon and these babies being born, it's funny, life is kind of like the distinction between labor and delivery and the rest of the hospital. In fact, this passage begs us to ask the question, is life more like labor and delivery, where there's joy and excitement and hope, or is it like the rest of the hospital? Or even worse, is it like labor and delivery, or is it more like hospice care? Maybe for the purposes of this sermon, we should ask this question, this question. How would life be different if labor and delivery wasn't just at the beginning of life, but also at the end of life too? Really, that's the hope of this passage, that the end of life doesn't end in the whimper of death in hospice care. It ends in joy and hope because something better has come. But this story does confront us with that question, doesn't it? Do we move from life to death, or do we move from death to life? It's my conviction that more and more of us, especially in the West, believe that life is really just 75 years of hospice care, 75 years of slowly but surely moving toward the grave. And what we need to do in those 75 years is simple. Well, we just need to increase our pleasure as much as possible, our fun in this life, and decrease and run away from as much pain as possible. But I want us to think about how that might deform us as a people and as a society. Think about it, moral character. Moral character is forged when we choose pain over pleasure, recognizing that giving ourselves over to something else is better for us, that doing the right thing, even when there are consequences, is how we grow in character. Love. What about love? Love is forged when we serve and sacrifice ourselves for the other meaning. Meaning is forged when we give ourselves over to something greater, something bigger, and something lasting. I wonder if that's what you're seeing in this world today. Are we seeing people who are deepening in in love for our fellow men, have great and deep moral character, are living our lives with meaning and purpose? I don't really think so. Our lives tend to not be full of hope and meaning, but rather the counterfeit, activity and hurry, and ultimately boredom. Our lives are not filled with loves, but rather the counterfeits, sex and pleasure and online likes. Our lives really aren't filled with moral character, but the counterfeits, 
techniques, performances, showmanship, how to win friends and influence people. Her lives aren't really filled with hope, but the looming specter of mortality. Her lives are not quietly filled doing God's business and making this world a better place, but trying to make a splash, finding our five minutes of fame, or maybe even worse, our five minutes of notoriety. This life is all there is. If the walls really are slowly caving in on us, the only thing you have is to maximize your pleasure, minimize your pain. St. Paul recognizes this. He brings the logic to its conclusion. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 32. If the dead are not raised, he writes, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He follows the logic to its conclusion. If life doesn't spring from death, if this is all there is, all we're left with is a party, a really morbid party. Even if you aren't convinced that Easter is true, I think we should all long for it to be true. That surely shouldn't be what human beings are for, one morbid party on the way to death. I don't know about you, I don't want to live in a hospice care world. I'd rather live in the hope of something better, life and joy in labor and delivery. That's what this story promises us. The first Easter, we're invited into the dawning of life, the life of the living one, the life that will last forever and ever. We're going to look at this passage in three ways today. First, we'll experience the story afresh. We're just going to kind of go through the story, at least the beginning. Second, we're going to evaluate the evidence. Well, is it true? Is it true that Jesus is risen? And third, we're going to be called to enter into the gospel as we respond by faith. So first, let's just experience the story afresh. The story opens with the same group of women who stand or stood far off from the crucifixion. They didn't want to go close to see the sadness and the pain on Jesus' face as He was being crucified. Then they were observant and religious women, and so instead of going and preparing spices and ointments for His burial the next day, which would have been Saturday and the Sabbath, they decided instead to rest. They took a day off as they should have. Now, it was Sunday morning. The text literally says, one day from the Sabbath at deepest dawn. The women bring their anointing spices to prepare Jesus' body. It's important to note that these women had no inkling as to what they would find. That's why they're bringing the spices. They thought the body was going to be there. It turns out that Palestinian peasants and San Antonio skeptics, though they differ in a lot of ways, have one belief in common. Dead people stay dead. They're confused, the text tells us, perplexed. In their wildest dreams, they could not imagine that someone would steal the body. I don't think it's even occurred to him that he was alive. In their confusion and disillusionment, two men then appear in dazzling apparel. We know from later on in Luke, Luke 24, 23, these were not mere men, but messengers from God. But I think the apparel would give it away. That word for dazzling there is only used one other time in the Gospels, and it means, or it's connected to the flashes of lightning. So scared are the women that they bow to the ground. And then the angels speak to them in verse 5, and really this is the hinge of this story. This is what they say, why do you seek the living amongst the dead? 
Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? This is the central claim in this story. And it's interesting, if you were in school, like a sixth grader, and you were trying to figure out what the story was about and diagramming it, you might draw a line on your piece of paper and at one put living and the other top put dead, and then say, okay, put all the characters in this story into the right column. Where would you put Jesus? In the dead column. You would put the women in the alive column. But what are the angels doing here? They're flipping the script completely. This phrase is less poetically but more poignantly translated as this, why do you seek the living one, singular, amongst the dead ones, plural? Why are you looking for this one who is the living one among all of the dead? In other words, it may appear that we're all alive, but there is only one living one. Now, to be sure, those words for life and death could mean physical death and physical life. Luke, a physician, knows quite a lot about that. Sometimes he uses the word death, necros, in a physical sense, like in 715, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. In Luke 9.60, Luke uses it in a slightly different way. He's referring to the spiritually dead. Let the dead, the spiritually dead, bury their own dead, the physically dead. In Luke 15.24, he uses it in a slightly different way. He uses necros to describe the prodigal son, relationally and emotionally disconnected from his family. For this my son was dead and is alive was lost and is found. When the angels ask why they are looking for the living one among the dead ones, they're not just saying that he's physically alive, they're saying more. It's a rebuke even. Have you been with him so long and you don't know who he is? Of course he's alive. He's the living one. All things were created by Him and for Him. Of course, He's alive. He's the living one. He's the second person of the Trinity, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Of course, He's the living one. He's alive. In Him, all live and move and have their being, and He gives breath to all that has life on the earth. He's the one who raises from the dead. He's the one who makes you spiritually alive. He's the one who connects you relationally, emotionally, spiritually with the Father. Dear friends, especially if you're examining Easter again, the claim of Easter is not just that Jesus lives on in our hearts. It's not just that He was miraculously resuscitated. It's not that He'll be remembered in the good deeds of His followers. No, the claim is that Jesus alone is the only living one, that death could not hold him. Shakespeare might still hold sway in his writings from the grave. Einstein might still influence physics. Some of you have probably studied Keynesian economics, but Jesus is alive. And any life that we now have, we now live in light of the Son of God. In that sense, He's like the Son, S-U-N. All of life is derived from its warmth and rays. Now, some of you might say, well, well, Matt, isn't there like small bits or pockets of sulfuric fumes that come out of the ocean from the mantle of the core of the earth? 
Probably you're not thinking that. I thought that. <laughs> Isn't there that too? Isn't life, can't life spring out of that? Well, technically, I guess, yes. But I would prefer not to eke out an existence on the sulfuric fumes that you could find at the bottom of the ocean. I would prefer to live my life in the dawning of the Son of God who gave Himself for me and now lives life everlasting. That leads to the important second question. Is it true? We've got to ask that question. Is it true? Is it an idle tale? Is it a myth? Is it something made up for the betterment of the apostles, or is it true? In a sermon, we can only scratch the surface on this question, so I would like to point you to three helpful books. I'll just say them. Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, if you haven't read it, good one. J. Warner Wallace's Cold Case Christianity, excuse me, or Tim Keller's The Reason for God. That's on the table out there. But in our limited time here, let me give us three good pieces of evidence that point to the truth of Jesus' resurrection. The linens, the women, and the motives. The linen, the women, and the motives. First, let's look at the linens. Verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and went home marveling at what had happened. Why did the linen cloths make Peter marvel? Well, Peter is like us. He didn't assume that Jesus had risen. He was looking for a natural or a logical explanation. Okay, the women say that, the, that Jesus isn't there. Someone must have stolen the body. Someone stole the body then. Now, we don't know why someone would have stolen the body. Grave robbers are normally looking for stuff, goods that they can sell, not bodies that they can take, but fine. It's the only logical way to think about it. But then Peter sees the linen cloths. What grave robber would have unwrapped the body of Jesus and then taken it out of the tomb? It would have been time-consuming, disgusting, completely unnecessary, not to mention that it would have given away the person that you were stealing. John tells us a little bit more. It says that the linen cloths were actually folded. If a robber ever comes to your house, they do not treat it nicely, do they? They toss it. They're looking for things. Things are in disarray. It's like the bed is made in the tomb. This was no grave robbery. Second, the women. It's a belabored point that the evidence of women would not have been taken seriously in this day and age. Despite the community of Jesus treating women well, the outside world would not have admitted their testimony in a court of law. But Luke takes up an extra line of, in, of expensive parchment in verse 10 to tell us their names. Mary, from a place called Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. The fact that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women would not have been something that the early community would have made up. If they were lying, they would have rather chosen someone else respectable. Nicodemus, the teacher of teachers, would have been a good name to choose. Or Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man who was interested in the Jesus movement. Maybe at least the apostles, they were men. Therefore, the women witnesses are a powerful evidence for the truthfulness of this account. But wait, you might say, but wait. What if the apostles were trying to make it seem real to the early readers? 
The response is simple. That's deeply anachronistic. Realism as a literary genre does not come about until about 1,800 years after this account. Not to mention, this is not just an account to be read. It's a testimony. Go and talk to Joanna. Go and talk to Mary, the mother of James. Go and talk to Mary Magdalene. Finally, there's the question of motive. What would compel the apostles to move from saying this is an idle tale to then giving their lives, spreading the truth of the story all over the known world? What would compel them? What's the motive? What's the reason? J. Warner Wallace, whom I mentioned before in his book, Cold Case Christianity, talks about this a little bit. He was a cold case detective for his first career, didn't believe in the Gospels, and then decided to examine them through that lens of being a cold case detective. And he said, look, generally speaking, all crimes committed have motives that fall into three categories. One, there's the motive of money. Two, there's the motive of pleasure. Three, there's the motive of power. So, if we can find in the apostles any one of those motives to do this, then maybe this story isn't true. Let's just start with money. That one doesn't really work too well. The apostles left jobs and families and security and homes in order to tell this story all around the world. Paul talks about being able to abound even when he has nothing. Money was not the motive for the apostles. Okay, well, what about pleasure? What greeted the apostles on these missionary journeys? Beatings, shipwreck, scoffing, ire. Not only that, not only that, but they preached against the indulgences of this present evil age. It wasn't about pleasure. Well, what about power? Matt, I've heard of the decadence of the church. Wasn't there a bunch of power to be had in the church back in those days? Well, you're off by about 250 to 300 years. Yes, the church, in the, starting in the 4th and 5th centuries, began to gain some power in Europe, but not at the time of the apostles. There was no benefit to be had. There was no power that they found. Rather, most of their lives, except for John, ended in complete powerlessness, martyrdom and death, crucified upside down, boiled alive, drowned, powerlessness. None of these motives make sense for us. Well, some might say, well, Matt, don't people die for what they believe in all the time? Don't people die for what they believe in? The answer is yes, that's true but it doesn't make it true. But let's think about this for a moment. The apostles didn't die for what they believed in per se, did they? They died for something that they saw. They touched the risen Jesus. They were with the risen Jesus. Their death matters a lot more than a martyr who might just die for what he believes in. Their death is about something that's true. The only motive that makes sense, I think, is that they were telling the truth. Now look, no matter how many pieces of evidence that we look at, and evidence is important, it's not going to get you all the way there. 
It's one thing to technically believe in the resurrection of Jesus. It's another thing to enter into it, to have the resurrection seep into the bottom of your heart, into your very life and bones. And that's really what we're after. We're not after technical belief. God invites us into a new reality, a new dawn. Three times in Luke's gospel, Jesus predicts His death and resurrection, 9-22, and 18-33. But these disciples didn't really put it together. It was still outside of the realm of possibility for them. But who did put it together? The angels. The angels put it together. Look again at verses 6 and 7. Another gentle rebuke from the angels. Remember? Remember how He told you while He was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise? Don't you remember? Now, what's really beautiful about these words is that they are a summary of all three of Jesus' predictions, but it's not a direct quotation of any one of them. Well, what does that mean? That means that the angels were hanging on every word that came out of Jesus' mouth. They were listening to Him throughout His whole ministry, and they were able to then put everything that He said together and summarize and reflect it back to us, those words had gone deep. The New Testament Scriptures actually tell us that the angels are peering into this story. The angels are amazed at what God has done in the person of Jesus. They are hanging on to His every word. Herein lies the invitation. We won't enter into the life of the living one, even if we technically believe in the resurrection unless our hearts are lit on fire by God's very words. It's the word that means everything. Luke tells us the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Some of you probably remember it. Both have died, but the rich man is in torment. Lazarus, the poor man, is in paradise. And the rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead and warn his five other brothers. And he says, look, If Lazarus appears to them, then maybe they'll listen. This is what Abraham says. If your brothers do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe even if someone rises from the dead. It's an amazing statement. Peter himself says, I was with Jesus and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention. Here's what it means. Even if Jesus came into this building right now, started speaking to you, knew everything about your life. Maybe someone died in the corner and he rose them up to newness of life. You would find a way to disbelieve that it had happened unless you were first and foremost connected to God's Word. That's what happened in his earthly ministry. People saw amazing things from Jesus. They still convinced themselves it wasn't true because they weren't connected to his Word. Every spiritual awakening has something in common. God's Word has come alive to that person. There's a deep belief that God Himself is speaking in these pages. John 6, 63, Jesus says this, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. If you don't know where to start, just start with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just read them. Ask ask that God would speak to you through them. 
See the empty tune as the skeleton key, as it were, to understand them. God has something to say to you. Now, look, I get it. I get that many of us struggle with belief. These devout women didn't see it coming. Even the apostles said that it was an idle tale. Doubt, even skepticism, are understandable. At Redeemer, I really do want to say we want to be a place for you where you can lean in and say, I'm not sure, but I want to explore this. We need to, be, we need to have safety for you to do that. At the same time, we all need to wrestle with these claims. Either Jesus is alive, either He's the living one, or He's not. Or maybe to go back to the start. Either this world is in labor and delivery, or it's in hospice care. Either my life is in labor and delivery, or it's in hospice care. There's pain and there's tears in both places. There's hardship and difficulty. It hurts. But one of them turns out good, while the other turns out dead. Scriptures actually speak of the Christian hope and the resurrection as if we were birthing a child, as if labor and delivery don't just happen at the beginning of life, but at the end of life too. Listen to Romans 8, 21 through 25. This is the message's version. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. The joyful anticipation deepens. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God arousing within. We're feeling the birth pangs. These barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That's why waiting doesn't diminish us. Any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. And the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy. Are you joyfully awaiting that day when Easter Sunday is finally and fully here in the risen person of Jesus? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You for this story. Thank You for the challenge that it is to us. We ask, Lord God, would You even now kindle faith in our hearts? Would You help us to bring our confusion and even believing that this is an idle tale to the table? Help us to bring those beliefs to Your Word. And Lord God, meet us. Holy Spirit, meet us. Make us pregnant with anticipation that joy is coming for us in the risen person of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Amen.